Welcome to the greatest discovery to new Star Trek podcast from the makers of the greatest generation. I'm Adam Pranica. I'm Ben Harrison. Had a little bit of a scare over the last few days. Uh-oh. Ben. <laughs> I'm sure you've been scared like this. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I, I exist in a, I have a resting scared face and I, uh, I exist in a, a state of constant anxiety, basically. <laughs> it was my, my special person's birthday. Yeah. Uh, a few days ago. Unfortunately, she is saddled with a birthday that is extremely proximate to a major holiday. Yeah. Sure. We both know a lot of people who have birthdays on or around, you know, the holiday holidays, mm-hmm. as well as, you know, the other holidays throughout the year. Like a July 4th birthday can't be that great. Yeah. Halloween birthday has its challenges. My wife has got the Thanksgiving birthday. I have a very proximate to Halloween birthday, and it's annoying yeah. enough that I can't even imagine how annoying it would be that to be closer to a big holiday. The thing that scared me was when she turned to me lovingly, mm-hmm. I should add, said, uh, I don't want to plan anything. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to plan anything. I don't want to plan anything. <laughs> you hear the inception boom every sentence that ends? And what that means is is obvious. Yeah. It means I had to jump in there and plan it. And like, you don't have to plan something the way you would plan it. You kind of have to plan it the way she would plan it. Oh, it would be so much easier if it were the former, but <laughs> yeah. it being the latter, I put a great deal of pressure on myself to make it good. Yeah. Uh, you know what? Not even make it good, make it not disappointing. Right. (laughs) Two distinct things. (laughs) And yet, if I could have a guarantee of one of those, Mm -hmm. I'd take the latter. Do not disappoint. I'm like, I want to be the medical doctor of making plans for people I care about. Do not disappoint. Right, right. Is the snake coiled around the thing that that the, the medical logo does? Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> Adam planning a birthday is like a presidential candidate selecting a running mate. Yeah. Do, <laughs> yeah. You just don't want to drive voters away. Yeah. And having just returned today, I think we can say with some amount of assuredness, it was, it was pretty good. Hey. hey <laughs> she was not disappointed. Did not disappoint. Oh, man. Wonderful. So I feel like I, I, feel like I, I robbed an emotional bank and, <laughs> and, uh, and got away with it scot-free. I have been on like two or three weekends that your, your special lady put the planning in on. And I, she does it all the time and she rules at it. That's part of the problem for me. I'm looking at the next urinal over yeah. of of like the of the vacation planning, and I'm seeing just a massive hog. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm looking at my vacation planning, and it's just a little tinkler. Yeah, a little little limpo. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing exciting about it. No, no, but like, I mean, I think she both is really good at it, and from you know from here in the cheap seats, it seems like there's some 
great satisfaction that she derives from it as well. But mm -hmm. it's like, if you're good at something, never do it for free. <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately, that that has been her burden for a long time. I felt like a crazy person when I was uh, in the run up to my wedding because my wife really wanted to plan the wedding. Like she wanted to be... Mm -hmm. the person in charge of planning the wedding. It was something that was really important to her. And I was like, I'm a video producer, like getting <laughs> people and food and equipment in a place and lighting it and having things happen at, uh, at certain times of the day is like what I do for a living. I'm really All good I at it. All I do is cue stuff. <laughs> like I'm really good at it despite being not a type A personality. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I can figure this out. Like don't burden yourself. I'll do it. You have a real job. I'll, I'll fucking handle this. And she was like, nope, you don't, you don't know what you're talking about. You're not doing it. <laughs> And I had to settle for like the the thing that uh, that many fellows settle for, which is you know pick one or two things to have really strong feelings about, and then like mostly just be a cheerleader and a extra set of hands for. The hey, rest look, of I know your wife doesn't listen to our show, so I can say this <laughs> without fear of repercussion. Uh, I think the things that you planned were among my favorite things about your wedding. Oh. I, I like the choices oh, that you made. <laughs> Shots fired. Yeah. <laughs> but that said, like, your wife is, like, authentically great at that stuff. That's the warning, though, right? Don't be too great at the heavy lift. Yeah. Because if you are, all of a sudden, all you do is lift. It's like owning a pickup truck. People are going to ask you to help them move all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the planning pickup truck we're talking about. Yeah. So you that guys went to wine country? We did. We we drove a couple hours north and just sat in patio chairs <laughs> having little tasters of wine for a weekend. And it was really nice. It was the oops all flights of <laughs> birthday trips. We brought the puppy with us. Yeah. Who, having just flown to Seattle and back, we just wanted to bang, bang with the puppy, right? Mm -hmm. Like get her, like make sure she's not home for like a couple weeks at a time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Undoing all of the work that we'd done up to that point. <laughs> Truly disoriented by the place that she lives. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we took her up there and uh, had patio hangs with her and uh, it was just a great time. I like going up there. I want to do that more often. It's just, yeah. here's the thing, like we've been so stressed out over the last few months with production yeah. to put ourselves during that holiday week into a place where, you know, we were made to not produce. Right. Just lay back in the cut, maybe taste some wine, maybe cook cook a meal for a family. Yeah. That's what we ended up doing. And I know when we talked about it after the fact, it was a really recuperative week for us that I'm glad that we were able to get. We went like four days without even talking to each other, which is pretty rare. <laughs> yeah. And necessary. People that listen to Greatest Discovery every week will have noticed some new voices uh, reading the credits on the ends of the show. Yeah. Uh, these are guest editors that we've been hiring from our uh, our pool of applicants, and we're lucky to find some really great people for that, and they're already a big help. Yeah. It's not a luxury. It is, uh, it is what makes this show work starting now, really. Really. It really is. Um, so uh, thanks to all the folks who support the show, because they've enabled us to kind of get back into a sustainable work-life balance, like literally in the last two weeks. Yeah. We are people and we have shows that need a producer and hopefully we will be matching all of those things up here shortly.
Well, Adam, do you want to see if we uh, match up with uh, an episode of Star Trek Discovery? I like our chances (laughs) of matching up with Star Trek Discovery Season 4, Episode 3. Choosh to leave. Glad we were on the same page about how that needs to be read. (laughs) I think we're also on the same page with how interested we are in going after that cheap heat of a ship named the USS Credence (laughs) and how you know we're cheap enough to just go into like a midnight special Mm -hmm. style (laughs) music bed during our conversation about the USS Credence. What a cool ship, Adam. Oh, yeah. Uh, That's the one you want to send on all the jungle missions. Is this ship the, the like, are we in the 3,200s? 800 years past the 22nd century? Yeah. Yeah, because the OG pre-original series Star Trek is 23rd century. Yeah, so this is... You love to hear Star Trek podcasters work out this kind of math, <laughs> just live on the mic. 3200s or so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Neighborhood of 3200s. Is this a Del Sol class to them? Boy, really handsome looking ship, though. If the Honda Del Sol had stayed in production for, <laughs> for 1800 years or whatever. <laughs> yeah, what would she look like? It probably looks something like this. Yeah. This is a ship that is doing its dilithium milk run. Yeah, the dilithium milk runs have continued. It's just not Discovery doing them. Right. Yeah, there's a distribution of labor here that I can really appreciate. This is a ship and crew that seems pretty familiar with the dangers involved. They kept the shields up until the moment they're ready to beam down the dilithium. And wouldn't you know it, as soon as they drop those shields, ninjas transport aboard. And shit goes hog wild in a very tight space. This is a this is a captain that's throwing overhand rights at mm-hmm. these ninjas. Mm-hmm. Really doling out some ass weapons. You notice that the ninjas aren't shooting guns because certain things in here don't react well to bullets. <laughs> I mean, I it's fun to see a co-op Malat crew just slice some people in half. Yeah, yeah. This is a, a rugged Star Trek fight and a couple of Starfleets by the farm in this one because they do not. I mean, who do you blame this on? They were given a choice. Because <laughs> they were. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, they, they, uh, they died in the line, you know? They were doing their duty to provide dilithium to that booty. That's what I'm saying. Like, it hardly seems worth it. It's not like the co-op Malat were going to steal the ship. They were taking, like, this is basically robbing a bank truck. Don't die for insured monetary notes, you know? Like, like the FDIC is going to handle this dilithium. Yeah, but like, here's the thing. Dilithium is such a scarce resource in this future. And now the Federation are the only people that have access to an abundant supply of it. I feel like it's a little more comparable to like terrorists taking a nuke. You know, it's like they're not supposed to have this. Except (laughs) like we never go back to the dilithium planet. Yeah. That's the place where you should steal it from. You should. I'm guessing better defended than USS Credence. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, We basically cut to the after-mission report happening. 
yeah. uh, in the law offices of Sweet James Sr. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Admiral Swiss bank account haver is telling everybody about uh, Javini, the leader of this knockover job uh, mm-hmm. where all the dilithium got stolen. She's a co-op Malat nun. And uh, we're meeting with uh, the president of the Federation, president of Navarre, and Captain Burnham. They're talking about how this is not going to be something that they can tolerate. This is like the third in a string of robberies, and now Federation officers are getting killed. They uh, they got to go go after this person. There's a suggestion that only a co-op malat can catch a co-op malat, <laughs> and that's why we've brought back Gabriel Burnham. Yeah, she says like this is a co-op malat matter, and we'd like to handle it internally, and the. President of the Federation's like, uh, you know, we're actually kind of a socialist society and we don't really believe that industry can regulate itself. So we're going to send some of our people to make sure that that actually happens. And what I want out of each and every one of you is a hard target search of every Mm -hmm. gas station, residence, warehouse, farmhouse, (laughs) hen house, outhouse and doghouse in this quadrant. I don't know if you felt the same way I did in this scene. But I am starting to become suspicious of the ambassador of Navarre. She is so thirsty for Federation membership. Mm -hmm. And the president of the Federation also equally thirsty. What is the holdup here? Like, why are they being so flirtatious with each other without hopping into diplomatic bed? Mm -hmm. It seems like... What we're being told is that, you know, things are really dicey. It's not a sure thing that Navarre joins the Federation. Yeah. They certainly want to work together, but things need to work out. Right. With this mission specifically, to have any kind of chance at all, we're kind of loading up the mission with this extra weight. Maybe it's like uh, online dating where you're supposed to like text a little bit and flirt and then like meet up for coffee so that there's no pressure. (laughs) They don't want to like rush into something. I went to the Star Trek sports book yesterday mm-hmm. and I made a little bet. Oh, okay. <laughs> this has gone badly for us in the past. <laughs> I saw on the board, uh, did Navarre cause the anomaly mm. plus 10,000? Mm. I put some money on that. <laughs> it's a real long shot, but I see this diplomat wanting to get in. I feel like before Navarre is rightfully blamed as the cause. Wow. Of this problem. Wow. That's what I think is going on. Too thirsty. It's an even longer bet, but I'm still holding <laughs> on to my Nagilam ticket. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you never get rid of the Nagilam ticket. Yeah. So it is agreed. There, this will be a, a joint operation between the Coat Malat and the crew of the Discovery. Uh, or not the crew of the Discovery, but specifically Michael Burnham. Right. Yeah. She gets all the great missions. Yeah. Does the Discovery even go anywhere this episode? Is it is it just in space dock at Federation HQ the entire time? That's a great question because, I mean, Michael borrows the keys to book ship a little later. Yeah. And yeah, I don't think it does. It's got to stay behind it to, to work the Grey Golem. Yeah, got to work the Grey Golem. President Shoulderpads at the end of <laughs> this meeting warns Burnham about the thing that you and I talked about a moment ago, which is like, Super sensitive mission, Michael. We need to keep things cool between us and the Navarre. And, you know, Kowats are going to malat. I just think uh, 
you know, like bring her in, try not to kill her, I guess is the thing. Uh, You're kind of deputized as a Starfleet Ranger and you've got an arrest warrant mission. That's what's going on here. If you could avoid one of those scenes where somebody, you know, has a sword go through them and there's a moment where you're like, did they get hit? And then like one part of their body slides off the other part. Yeah. That would be great. (laughs) Yeah. If... Try to avoid the gross out death on this mission if you can. This is a new Star Trek. Yeah. No more eye trauma if we can avoid it also. Almost as gross as a ROM being bifurcated by a samurai sword is uh, Tilly's dish of macaroni and cheese in yeah. the commissary. Tilly's a cheese hater? What the fuck? It tastes like shit because it is shit, Ben. <laughs> that was disturbingly not delicious. She was going to try and suffer through a bowl of mac and cheese, but uh, quickly spits it up into her napkin so that she can kick it to Saru. What she explains to him is that she's doing all this stuff that's kind of like outside of her routine at the behest of Dr. Culber, who's kind of trying to talk her through this ennui she's been experiencing. And the feeling she has is that she doesn't really know what her life goal is. She looked at those cadets who knew they were in the right place doing the right thing with their lives and she is wondering the same thing and i feel like this could be the show sort of talking to itself about a question you raised on the last episode adam like what are what do we want now like what is the crew of the discovery about at this point a question at the time that many people found idiotic <laughs> but now i think we're all seeing just sort of what a great question that was <laughs> it's valid <laughs> yeah who said it was idiotic? Did you get shit on the internet? Uh, I'm not reading any shit on the internet anymore. Uh, no, yeah. I just remember at the time you going like, no one cares about that. Like we're we're on dilithium milk runs. I said no one cares about going back to the past because that's that's that was deso- decided in season two. <laughs> Everyone's a little quick to dismiss quote unquote the past. <laughs> when your seasons are 10 episodes, I find the haste of that a little speedy. Mm, okay. Well, <laughs> I would also take season three as evidence that <laughs> nobody cares about it because it didn't come up a single time. <laughs> Get a light. <laughs> they are in a totally empty commissary and Saru is off to a meeting uh, to, I guess, barter for Kaminar's new spaceport. Yeah. Uh, he says the title of a past episode in a new episode. <laughs> That's always fun. <laughs> And he's like, uh, look, you can take care of my plants, but uh, one of my plants has a very gremlin-style warning. I'm yeah. just going to leave you with that. Yeah. That was a setup that I found very frustratingly unpaid off. I I mean, I want to see a plant kill something or grow so large it bursts through a wall. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We don't pay off this thread at all here. Retrospectively, do you think that Tilly didn't like the... Mac and cheese because she couldn't eat it while looking at Saru's fingers. (laughs) I think, look, I backed up this scene a couple of times. And if you scrub back and watch her eye line just before she spits out the food, you can tell what she's looking at. Yeah, you know what she's looking at. This is why if you're Saru, you should really be sticking to like straw based Mm. food and Bev. Keep those, keep those. Duck dick fingers under a draped cloth napkin. <laughs>
Michael Burnham goes down to engineering where Book is kind of like hanging out doing some what happened to Quajon stuff on his computer. Uh, she asks him about, hey, can I borrow the Millennium Falcon? And he says, sure, as long as you promise to bring her back without a scratch. Mm-hmm. And then she's like, hey, what's up? Uh, what's up with Stamets over there? What's he doing? He's now your best friend as of last episode. Programmable matter makes it easy to not scratch a borrowed starship, right? <laughs> right? I have every confidence that Michael will explode every piece of bookship and it will go right back together the way it started. Yeah. And- I wondered if that was like like a like that's like an ancient saying that has sort of lost context, but it's still like mind your P's and Q's like nobody knows what P's or Q's are, but we still sometimes say it to kids, you know, that's it. Exactly. Is this an order? It isn't, is it? No, it's a girlfriend asking a boyfriend for a favor. Can I borrow the whip? (sighs) This is awkward shit. You start mixing the business and the relationship aspect. Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. I mean, Book sort of has to loan her the car. And he's like, you know, I've been really careful about the rims uh, when I parallel park. (laughs) Oof. Yeah, but even to suggest a special care you've been taking Mm -hmm. with those rims can sometimes come off as a little pre-accusatory. Right. You can get someone pregnant even from (laughs) pre-accusation. You gotta be careful. Yeah. Accusing in a hot tub is not a preventative. <laughs> this is a scene that is uh, conveniently located because it's a place where Stamets is also. He's working up uh, the primordial wormhole problem on, I guess, the 32nd century equivalent of some whiteboards. Yeah. He's just standing in the middle of a room gesturing to these things about what he's now calling the DMA, the dark matter anomaly. Yeah. I felt bad for the person in the uh, post-production department that had to motion track his badge and make it look like the the math he's doing is being projected from his chest. (laughs) I can only guess that the motion tracking software is so much better now than it used to be when we were using it. Yeah. Because it (laughs) it was a pain in the fucking ass about 10 years ago. It used to suck so much. Uh, I do think it's gotten better, but also like it's three-dimensional, right? Because it's like a single point, but then the what it's connecting to is staying still. Yes. Yeah. yeah so. uh, the problem with the DMA is that it doesn't have tachyons, and that is that's sort of an essential quality to a primordial wormhole. And without the tachyons, what is this thing even? Is it even a her? <laughs> no tachyons. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> it doesn't even have tachyons. <laughs> Whoa! Oh my god! Oh my god! It's got four out of the five things! Oh my god! (laughs) Stamets has to go to... If you're a science man, Mm -hmm. one of the toughest crowds I think you could possibly go to is to present on Navarre, right? Yeah, yeah. That's the big leagues. That's the World Series of presenting a science paper. It's Nerd Top Gun. Yeah. And Book is like, road trip, I'm going with you, buddy. How do they go? Does Is this where the, does the Discovery go to Navarre? No. Wait, maybe? How did they get there? Because this, one thing that we find out later in this episode is that this all took place over the course of a day. You know what I'm starting to miss? (laughs) Is the cut to the exterior as an interstitial of a ship cruising. Right. 
I, we don't get any of that in the show. Like, you so rarely get it that, like, when this ship opened on the Credence coming into orbit yeah. of a planet, I was like, <gasps> Star Trek, yes! I, t- I totally blasted. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just a preference for uh, a nostalgic version of the show. It places you in the context of the story in a useful way. I wanted to know how they got to where they went. And, yeah. Uh, I feel like that's like <laughs> part of the fun of the franchise in a weird way. Yeah, if we're just cutting around from conference room to conference room, then are we even doing sci-fi? That's not how this works. Not how any of this works. So Stamets is reluctant to have Book go along with him. Yeah. Because he makes sure Book knows that his presentation is heavy on the visual aids, and those visual aids include a lot of dead birds and a lot of dead Quajon. <laughs> My presentation is like 50% math you won't understand, and then 50% like the rotten.com of Quajon. <laughs> Webster's Dictionary defines genocide as... <laughs> Okay, I uh, I just got off the phone with uh, my bookie, and I have placed a little side bet on the anomaly being some sort of Hoosnock revenge plot. Can't rule it out. Not at all. So we cut on over to, uh, to Six Bay, where we see the Grey Golem being constructed. I... Do you finish on the face? <laughs> bones! Bones us! Like, I, I kind of feel like seeing the face construction may be the most horrifying part of, of any Gollum creation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe you start there and finish finish on the tootsies. Face first, if you're making a Gollum, is, uh, is the rule. It's sort of the uh, fifth element making a bear do scene. <laughs> and Gray standing over, looking at it, pretty psyched about this whole thing and talking to Adira about... Like, is he going to be accepted? This is a very sweet scene, a lot of reassurance by Ajira that they think Gray is going to be a big hit among the crew. And, you know, like Culber there, not able to participate in this conversation. So Adira is still sort of there to serve as a intermediary or an interpreter for Gray. And that Trill dude from the last season shows up to like holographically work the reintegration of gray into the gray column. And they're to holographically present the warning. This isn't just a hard drive transfer. Yeah. Guardian Z is like, look, I know we have to go a very short distance between these two beings to transfer gray's mind into the golem. But uh, if I get a little bit of fumble fingers here, <laughs> You know, and and drop the mind onto the ground. Uh, It's not a sure thing. So what we're talking about here is death without saying that word, really, in this scene. Like, we we have to increase the stakes here, and that's what Guardian Z is here to do. Yeah. I also sort of felt like they may be planting seeds in this scene, though, because Gray's relationship to Guardian Z is one of tremendous admiration. Gray wanted Mm -hmm. to become a Guardian before he got crushed by an asteroid yeah and because adira has met gray's heroes adira has been disabused of whatever (laughs) fawning feelings that that gray might have well i was just thinking about the fact that they have kind of a teenage love between the two of them and it sort of seems like their life paths may be on divergent trajectories in a way of like 
Ray is going to go off to college and Adira maybe stay on the disco. Like, does bringing mm. Gray into the corporeal world sort of sow the seeds of them breaking up eventually? This is a question without an answer to Ben. Like, Gray's Gollum has the trill spots, and yet there is no ankylosaur <laughs> present in the Gollum, yeah. right? So are we stealing the spot valor here? Mm. Is this just a henna tattoo <laughs> situation? Could you make like a uh, like a ankylosaur android and put it into the? That's my favorite Radiohead album, by the way. <laughs> I want to know more about uh, the trill in this and all subsequent scenes. Uh, the outside of Guardian Z, you know, being there to represent the the trill culture. Mm -hmm. There is no mechanical discussion of that. Yeah. Especially because you're talking about Grey being so fawning at Guardian Z. Like, there's a reason why. Mm -hmm. It's the Ankylosaur. Ankylosaur thirst. True yeah. for many trills. And yeah. probably more than any ones that used to have one but won't anymore. Yeah. So in the corridor, I'm going to guess just outside this conversation, Saru and Michael Burnham are walking. <laughs> Tilly comes up because Saru wants to suggest that Michael Burnham take her on the mish. Um, he This is awful. This is like throwing a party and having a friend say, you know, I've got some other friends who would love this party. <laughs> and they may be a little socially awkward, yeah. but it would be great for them if you invited them to your party. Yeah. I mean, the logic he suggests is like Tilly is an easy person to get along with. So the delicate diplomatic elements of Michael Burnham's mission uh, maybe helped. But Michael Burnham is like, you know, we're going to like apprehend like a super dangerous armed nut bar, right? <laughs> like she's Sorry. running around stabbing people with swords and you want Tilly to go? <laughs> Saru's like, I know the stakes couldn't be higher for this mission. I've heard about how much you need to var to join the fold and whatever. But I got to tell you, I have a very high value house plant back in my apartment. And I'm starting to regret uh, how willing I was to have Tilly water that thing. Yeah. So Michael Burnham agrees to this. And we smash cut to Tilly meeting the other Coat Malat who will be on the mission, who uh, radical candors. Uh, Tilly into not being nervous around her. You think Javani's sister might be safe because she's the sister. She's the sister and she gets a line. She's introduced to die though. She, she is, we find out later. She, she is the red shirt of the mission. You want to, Tilly is fine at the end of this episode having gone through like her path. She should be way more affected by Everyone Tilly talks to seems to die that episode. <laughs> oh, you're a guest star? Cool. <laughs> Cut to wasted. <laughs> Michael and Gabrielle Burnham have a conversation about, like, what's up with Javini? What's her significance to you, Gabrielle? And Gabrielle explains that Javini was the co-op Malat that sort of inducted her into the sisterhood, taught her all the sword moves, and uh, was the person that helped her kind of build a life for herself after she found herself marooned in the future. 
oh, so she's why you acted so messed up towards me in that episode last season? <laughs> huh. <laughs> Good to know. She seems cool. Let's definitely not kill her. <laughs> <laughs> it's in this moment that Gabrielle Burnham discloses that this will be a no phasers mission. It's it's swords only. It's swords at dawn. Mm-hmm. And she's brought swords for everyone. Blaster's such a crude weapon. Not as yeah. elegant as the swords favored by the co-op Milan. You could blast a person in half, but there's some cauterization happening there. It's far less disgusting than what a mm-hmm. sword can do. And that's what we're really here to do is dole out disgusting death. This thing is always set to gore. Yeah, until he fucking whips it around like lightsaber kid from that <laughs> embarrassing video 10, 10 years ago. <laughs> I feel like that was like 20 years ago, actually. Yeah. I have no concept of time, but you know what video I'm talking about. Yeah. Unfortunately for that kid, everyone knows what video you're talking about. Yeah. So they set down on this dusty, atmosphereless moon. Uh, this is they they had a tracking device in the dilithia, and this is where it was. And pretty much no sooner have they started to figure out that they've come to the right place than more ninjas show up and start uh, hacking and slashing at everybody. Um, Gabrielle's sister gets sorted to death. Uh, Tilly manages to throw Gabrielle a sword and she dispatches the rest of the ninjas. But, uh, but then Javini shows up. It's so much more gruesome when someone dies by a sword, uh, over the top. Oh yeah. The sword that goes down in. Down in versus through and through. Yeah. Is so much grosser. Yeah. Because it's you're like stirring up, like you're cutting through a lot of organs. I think the grossest sword death is the one where it's like through the bottom of the jaw and then you see the sword in the mouth and then it like yeah. has gone up into the brain. That's number one with a bullet, but a close second is down through the like collarbone and into your guts yeah. that way. And that's how this poor gal buys it. Yeah. Javini seems pretty surprised to see Coat Malats on her doorstep when she warps into. Like, Javini is always like the last person to warp in. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to transport in. I'm, I'm misusing my techno babble here. She's a good delegator of tasks. She's definitely the project manager of this thing. Right. She's like, hey, uh, choose to live. Leave me alone. I'm doing my thing. And uh, that's pretty much the confirmation. You know, they suspected that she had bound herself to a lost cause, but uh, now they have some pretty firm confirmation of that. She's sad, but not too sad because she's got a warning for them at the end of the scene. Yeah. Back in Six Bay, Guardian Z pronounces the unjoining a success. That's step one. I couldn't believe they didn't show any of the process. I wanted to see like hands on, you know, like I wanted to. Right. They added 10 minutes to the end of Star Trek three to show us the process. You get eight minutes in face off (laughs) of that montage. I know. It's amazing. (laughs) You don't see ships in transit and you don't see the process here. Yeah. And that's why I found myself getting a little lost in what this process was exactly. Guardian Z said something about not sensing Grey in the Grey Golem yet. And yeah. I was like, can he, like, he's a hologram. How could, how, how could he possibly sense? What, what's he sensing with? I wonder if it looked too silly because later on you get like two beds pushed up next to each other mm-hmm. and one of them contains the Golem. The other one, I guess, 
contains the air that includes Fantasy Grey. Was Adira in that bed? Or was Fantasy Grey in that bed? You never see Adira in that bed, so I don't know. Yeah. So <laughs> Culber's there to to get us off of these questions by going, hey, remember Dr. Pollard? She's here and uh, she can take it from here. Why don't we go into the hotel lobby yeah. and have a hang? Maybe Adira would do well to uh, get some fresh air, walk around, clear their head a little bit. Right. What do you think of when you think of male grooming? Maybe it's a sharp haircut and a little bit of product, or a bit of the old beard wax twisted into the ends of a mustache. Maybe it's a shower, a shave, a little spritz of fragrance. Me? I think of shaving my nuts. And not just my nuts, all around those nuts. I'm talking all around those nuts. And this form of male grooming is hard to do when your junk looks like a log of Play-Doh rolled through a dustpan in a barber shop. It's wrinkly, it's wriggly, nothing stays in place, and it's the one area where you don't want to have an accident. That's why I'm glad we're sponsored by the spring cleaning champions at Manscaped. They sent me their brand new Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It's their fifth generation trimmer, featuring two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, a standard one for taking a little bit off the top, and a new foil blade to go smooth, wherever your heart desires. They also sent me an extra-large Manscaped t-shirt, which I will never wear, but it was nice of them to do. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. I have tried so many meal services over the years. After all, I am a podcast host. And I got to tell you, Factor Meals is my favorite. Why? Because I can go from what am I going to have for dinner to eating a great dinner in exactly two minutes with Factor Meals. And don't sleep on their smoothies either. I got six of these in the box this week. Mango, tropical fruit, strawberry or banana. They're all amazing. They're like meal supplements I can enjoy while I'm on the go. Head to factormeals.com slash trek50 and use the code trek50 to get 50% off. Again, that's the code trek50 at factormeals.com slash trek50 to get 50% off. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. 
Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. Back on the moon, we discover that's no moon. It's a trap! Which one of us was going to say it? It had to be you. I had to say it. Yeah. Gabrielle, Michael, and Tilly beam into the core, and they discover it's very LV-426 looking down there. But, like, the eggs are, like, really big and not exactly (laughs) egg-shaped. It would have been a great beginning to an Aliens Universe crossover, this scene. Prometheus cave scene. (laughs) Aliens was first to market on... On the chrysalis yeah, thing. Yeah. You know? They find a dead here, and it's under a Coat Malat cloak. And it's a type of alien that they don't recognize. And they like check it against the database, and the database doesn't recognize this alien. So, how strange do you have to look <laughs> <laughs> to not even be close to anything else? Yeah. I love the design of this. We get to see its whole body eventually, and it's yeah. a cool-looking alien. I hope these guys are become characters. Pretty interesting-looking scene down there. Yeah. There's like a banger, and that means the dilithium has been used to turn the moon on. Mm-hmm. And uh, they look up, and the uh, the warp core is actually way above them. The dilithium is in a bucket, Above the door. <laughs> Just waiting for the door. Coat Malat <laughs> prank. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's going to be very embarrassing when they open that thing up. Yeah. Michael and uh, and Gabrielle are at Burnamogerheads <laughs> a little bit. Yes. Tilly's uh, diplomatic skills come into play here. <laughs> she helps them kind of get past that. Right. But yeah, they go up the elevator. A nice wide shot of the whole chamber that they're in, showing just how big and full of pods it is. Burnham is usually presented to us as the smartest person in the room. And in this episode, I think it begins here too. She asks Tilly to shut the thing down, shut it all down. (laughs) And it came off to me like the mayor's aide in Ghostbusters wanting the containment unit shut down. She does not understand this technology. She doesn't know what's going to happen if they shut it down. I thought it was a little bit of a leap. She doesn't know anything about anything. Yeah. And then she looks at those glyphs, right? And she does the same thing. Like in a second, she's like, oh yeah, this is is an escape moon. And uh, we've got these people in cryostasis. This is like Grave Robber Protection Agency. Like, what if shut it all down had meant turn off the cryo units, you know? Exactly. What's to say that didn't happen? Yeah. Oh, cool, Michael. You just killed 300,000 individuals. Yeah. Hey, guess what just became a very hopeless mission? <laughs> you wanted a diplomatic incident? Well, there <laughs> it sits. No! Yeah. Speaking of diplomacy... Paul Stamets is on Navarre yelling at the Navarre Science Institute about Mm -hmm. his theory. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You sent your data already. We got it. His his presentation literally puts the Navarre to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) And I like that we finally get a little snippy Stamets here. Yeah. I I was wondering if you were going to enjoy that. I did quite a bit. Yeah. Fun. They go into a meditative state to process the information he's given them. And the big mystery is why no tachyons? Where are they at? 
How could this mm-hmm. possibly be a primordial wormhole if no tachyons? And uh, they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll we'll meditate on it. You you hang out. Books like for some reason my dash cam wasn't on during. <laughs> uh, so I guess the only way for us to find out is is via meld. Yeah, and the uh, the the president of Navarre is the person to do this. She suggests this like, hey, there's more than one way to skin a cat. There's more than one way to get information about what happened when Quajan was mm-hmm. destroyed. And I thought it was very interesting that Stamets was really the one to like come out swinging in book's defense yeah book has been shattered by this understandably Mm -hmm. and has been deeply screwed up for the last two episodes but volunteered to go on this mission because he wants to help figure out what happened and then is like yeah do the mind meld and stamets is like kind of not listening to him when he says like i want to do this i think there's something subtly really powerful happening in this scene and it's that if you don't get Trina's empathy for Book and his grief here, you might think that Trina's just using Book yeah. because they couldn't be more different as alien types go. They describe how the Navarre are with their emotions and they describe how Book's people are with theirs. They couldn't be more opposite. And if you don't have that kind of mutual respect for each other about how the two types of people process things. Yeah. You might think he's being taken advantage of, but but I think the the earlier part of the scene does so much work in allaying that fear. Yeah, and I think it's interesting now that I think about it that Stamets is sort of an interesting midpoint between those two ways of thinking like he is not fully a an emotional being the way book is and not fully mm-hmm. a logical being the way Trina is so so kind of can can serve as an advocate in the middle right in an interesting way but uh book really wants to go for it book's brains aren't the only thing being opened here tilly opens the hood on the dilithium system and uh and starts Yanking out isolinear chips. <laughs> that shit has happened. Yeah. I, I loved the design of the alien warp core. It looked so TOS in a way that yeah. was both like very retro, but also like really fit in the context of this of this ship. Mm-hmm. This is the scene where Michael Burnham like interprets the alien hieroglyphs and everything. And yeah. uh, and they shut down the warp core and then they explain to Tilly that she is going to be bait. If you're wondering where Culber and Adira went, they went to the lobby of the W Hotel, <laughs> which suggests that the bridge wasn't the only part of Discovery that got the flamethrower upgrade. We get uh, we get fire pits everywhere. Yeah. Or are they still at Federation HQ and this is somewhere there? Or on the surface of Navarre? You know what? I I like your theory that they're at HQ because they've got a Ferengi bartender back there. Oh. And the last time we saw Ferengi was was during the the uh, Diplomats React scene of a couple episodes ago. Yeah. Is this the franchise of Quark's Bar has survived into the future? Because it does have a sort of Quark's Bar-like energy to it, doesn't it? 
If you're thinking of upgrading your bridge <laughs> from wood-burning fireplace to gas, <laughs> you might consider other areas of the house to run the gas line. Perhaps you've been considering a gas range, or you'd like to stop buying propane tanks for your barbecue grill. First, contact your utility company to see if, <laughs> if your house is a candidate. It really feels like disco gas lined the whole, like every set. Every set gets a gas line now. <laughs> yeah. They like got it in the budget to have a fire marshal on set every time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you can't deny its beauty, especially in a scene like this. Yeah. Adira is upset that Gray is no longer safe in Adira's care. But I think that idea is preposterous anyway, because was Gray ever safe in this liminal space that they were in for the past season? Right. I don't think so. Yeah. Gray was only ever as safe as Adira was, which was not super safe. Adira was uh -huh. constantly going on dangerous missions. Yeah. I love Culber's move here, though. Did you notice this? Culber's like playing darts with Adira and then straight up drops Adira for Saru. Yeah. Without... There's sort of like the arm squeeze that suggests say, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to go mingle. <laughs> <laughs> I see somebody else I want to talk to. <laughs> yeah. Then Culver's gone. Yeah. This is another scene in a long line of scenes in this episode where somebody is getting reassured by somebody like Saru mm -hmm. is there to tell Culver like, Hey, I know you've got a ton on your shoulders right now. Like trying to both be a doctor and a mental health professional for the entire crew. Mm -hmm. And that's a ton I wrote in my notes, like, every other scene in this episode just feels like people reassuring each other. Yeah. And it was, like, at this point that I was like, come on, like, have some <laughs> have some characters disagree, you know? Not a lot of gramba this season of Star Trek Discovery, I'd say. Yeah. Perhaps a corrective for previous seasons, which had maybe too much gramba, but... Uh, well, this was my point about Michael Burnham's speeches this this season too, which is like, the more you add, the more power gets diluted from them. Yeah. So like as meaningful as a scene like this might be in a vacuum, when it's surrounded by five other scenes of similar emotional heft, yeah, things get a little blurry. And I just want to feel things more. I think that it's like, it's not just that they're similar emotional heft, but a similar type of emotion, which happened in the yeah. last episode also. There was that like, everybody is going through mm -hmm. grief about their trauma run of scenes in the last episode. And this one is the, everybody is telling each other, hey, keep your head up. You're doing a great job. Yeah. This is hard, but you're up to the task. It's a pretty minor criticism, but it got to me in this watch through. There's like some doubt erasure happening here that is like doubts are fine to have and a healthy part of processing what's going on to you as you move through the world. I don't know. I, I can appreciate the confidence inspiration that's happening, you know, all around this show, but I'm with you. It's okay to feel challenged by a thing. Yeah. So Adira goes back to the six bay slash ceremony room where the golem is lying presumably lifeless and they kind of do that it's that scene where you talk to the coma victim even though the coma victim can't hear you and right. Adira expresses all of these like you know these emotions that are kind of couched in like maybe you're gone but 
I hope you're not. I thought the scene was great. I did too. I have uh, I have talked to a coma victim before. It feels intense and strange in the way that this scene read to me. I thought they did a good job with it. Blue Del Barrio is such a charismatic way of expressing emotion on their face. Like I was kind of reeling from the previous scene of just like, okay, come on, enough of these kind of saccharine emotional moments. And, yeah. th- and then this just walloped me. This happens at an interesting part of the episode because then we go right back to Tilly in the co-op Malat trap in a place that looks like a Tarsum movie. <laughs> and here comes Giovanni and also Gabrielle and Michael Burnham. And then we're right back into a sword fight again. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and the, the action is, is pretty intense and winds up with Gabrielle. If you're Michelle Yeoh, are you just like, why weren't there more sword fights when <laughs> I was on the show? Like we're doing wire work and sword fights. <laughs> In in season four of Discovery, you had Michelle Yeoh. I'm not saying that that any of the actors doing the wire work and sword fights this season are substandard, but like, yeah. man, it's, you had one of the best. It feels like stolen wushu valor. Yeah, yeah. Gabrielle Burnham is like, I got this. And then turns out she does not got this. And Giovanni no. has a sword to her throat. And the showdown starts. And... The people whose spaceship disguised as a moon this is are called the Abronians. And yeah. they had to leave their star system because of a supernova. They're in stasis down there. And the reason all of this dilithium got stolen uh, was Giovanni wanted to give them a way to move away, move out of the path of the DMA if it happens to jog over this direction. There is the suggestion that the bodies of the Abronians have a kind of monetary value. Yeah, they're full of uh, latinum, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Got to get that get that Goldschlager body. Yeah. They could just puke it up on command like Morn. We get a lot of exposition here because Giovanni tells this story about the telepathic distress signal that she responds to and their lost cause becoming hers. And that she couldn't just ask the Federation for dilithium because the Federation only gives dilithium to planets and societies, not solo operators. Yeah. And if she said, well, I'm operating on behalf of X, then it yeah. would be public knowledge that a species of of people who are all asleep, whose bodies yeah. are loaded with latinum, were basically there for the taking. So the the grave robbers would descend on this moon. Michael Burnham figures that if she can just solve for the failure of the cryo system that is clearly happening down below and also have Tilly fix the engines in exactly the same three minute amount of time, maybe Giovanni will take the sword from her mother's throat and allow them to live. I kind of loved this moment because it really reminded me of when Michael Burnham was in the brig in the Battle of the Binary Stars and she had to kind of logic the computer into letting her leave the cell because the ship was getting blown apart. I mean, I did appreciate that part of it, but boy, oh boy, was this tidy as hell. Yeah. 
Well, I hope you can figure out this ancient alien computer system and fix whatever the problem is. Giovanni's like, yeah, I mean, I guess all we're going to do is stand here until Tilly can fix what she busted. So uh, nothing but time. Go sick or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So back on Navarre, Trina's like, look, we're going to do this meld and we're going to look for blue. That's the thing. If we see blue, it means that this single or double black hole, whatever this thing is, primordial butthole, it will confirm the Stamets hypothesis. So let's go in and meld this thing out of you. And in they go. And it is really quick. <laughs> like, yeah. we are in the meld for 30 seconds. And it's a very interesting, like, POV meld. Uh, I don't know mm-hmm. if we've ever gotten a meld depicted quite this way, but I really liked it. And yeah. it's like up to the moment of the frozen methane like crashing into book's ship that Mm -hmm. we see all this stuff and she's like okay got what i need and then book mid meld says don't end it just yet i got some other stuff i want to check out down here in my brains we never cut out to the exterior of book's head until the end but i so wanted book's hands to cover trina's hands (laughs) to like hold them there Yeah, I thought that it was very fun that we got to see this in the context of just having watched flashback for our mainline Star Trek podcast, The Greatest Generation. I don't know when that episode is coming out relative to this, but like it's mm-hmm. the same mechanic of book can go back in his memory. He can't yeah. change it, but he can like observe things about his memory. And uh, this is where he uh, confirms a thing that he didn't actually see with his own eyes when they were doing the Quajan Bar Mitzvah, but his little nephew knew that he loved him. This is what was eating book, was that uh, he didn't express his love to his family enough before they were taken away from him. Yeah, and when the nephew doesn't look back in anger, feels real good. It's confirmation of, uh, of what he had hoped all along. Yeah. Confirmation. You can put your syrup back around your neck. So Trina gave Book some closure here, and unfortunately, with the lack of blue on the test strip, Stamets has more doubts. More doubts. It's uh, it is not the primordial wormhole that uh, that he had theorized, and I guess it's good to eliminate an option, but it kind of puts them back at square one, right? Square one is exactly where we are at the very end of this episode, I thought. Yeah. We we crash through and tie up a number of storylines here at the end. Uh, Tilly fixes the motor. Giovanni lowers her sword. We've achieved simultaneous story conclusion with what's happening on this moon and what happened over on Navarre. Yeah. What we need to resolve at this point is what's going on in Six Bay, and that is... In the shadow of death, there being new life, I think is how Star Trek likes to put it. <laughs> the moon is venting its Goldschlager aliens onto their new home. I think these aliens might want to keep that moon in a barn under a tarp just in case. Like yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't <laughs> lose the escape pod if I were them. Yeah, yeah. Definitely keep the keys near the door in case you have to run out real quick. They take Giovanni into custody. She puts on her her handcuffs. She gets perp walked back to Navarre. Yeah. The vibe here is weird, right? Like, it seems like on the one hand, Burnham's like, uh, you know, leniency would be good. I sort of get what she was after. And then in the very same scene, 
Burnham seems to ride for like Punisher, Punisher bad. I wish I understood that a little bit better because like I don't think of like the Star Trek future as being one that does a lot of retributive justice unless you're talking about like the Klingons or something. But Burnham says specifically something about extenuating circumstances. And then the very same scene, she's like, justice must be served. Yeah. Is sending her to Navarre to stand trial there, like not going to be satisfactory for the family of the officer that got killed. Can we hear that from them? You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I I had one experience in my life where I had to call the cops on a guy because he was standing outside my bedroom window tapping the glass with a knife in the middle of the night and uh, didn't love doing it. But then like a couple of weeks later, all of this paperwork showed up from the district attorney's office. Like that was like victim services stuff. Like they wanted to connect me with counseling if I needed it and stuff. And I was like, I appreciate mm-hmm. all this stuff. There was like this, are you going to press charges stuff? And it was like, I don't know. Like the guy seemed like he was high as hell. Like, did he learn not to do that? Or like, I, you know, it was a very uneasy feeling for me because I was like, I don't want to punish him if he's already like gotten fucked over by having to spend the night in jail. Like I, the story you're telling is an example of like, whose job is it though? Like did Giovanni break the law in a way that makes Giovanni's punishment exist objectively like yeah. Javanius punishment is doled out objectively there seems to be a lot of subjective opinions about how that justice will be served in this room and the last place i would expect a, a subjective <laughs> form of justice to be leveled is on navarre right so what are we even talking about here yeah Giovanni did do a murder allegedly right but why would one justice system be more or less satisfactory than another is not really something that is well illuminated by any of this. So, Nor is it illuminated by Admiral definitely has season tickets to the symphony, even if he has to go by himself. (laughs) And he takes us on a very long walk toward a comparison between the president, him, Michael Burnham, and how a dysfunctional symphony operates. Yeah. I like this actor and I like this character, but I set up base camp halfway through his story, and I, I thought I'd just uh, go for the summit, maybe the next episode. <laughs> Tilly returns from her big mission to uh, Saru's quarters, where all his plants are, seem to be doing okay, despite the fact that she was the one taking care of them. Did anyone have Saru's quarters while he was gone? Or do you think it's just like a ruined hotel room that's been smoked in? Like, <laughs> like you have to be a real plant lover and an appreciator of a kind of humidity to to stay in Saru's ex-quarters. But now that Saru's back, he gets those quarters back. Yeah. I don't know. That was a question in my mind as well. Like, did he leave and all those plants died? And he's these are new things that he's planted since the last episode? Or... Is he a guy who travels with like a bunch of hat boxes full of plants? Which has got to be a real pain in the ass. Yeah. And then we cut down to the Gollum room where the Gollum wakes up. We have a very proud Dr. Frankenstein in Culber <laughs> watching this monster wake up. <laughs> he immediately eats a deer's brains and then goes for Culber's brains. And then the villagers come with pitchforks and torches. Gray tears Adira apart like Bishop. 
at the end of Aliens, like, like torso and legs just go flying across the room. Opposite directions. <laughs> Did not see that coming. That was the Picard effect that they referred to. We're going to see that in the next season of Picard. I mean, there were co-op a lot in this episode, and I was expecting that to be where all the violence would be located. Yeah. Not at all. No. No, that's not what happens at all. Gray is happy and whole, and Adira's got those magic hands. Yeah. That's that's what Gray blames this on. Gray's like, I, I couldn't have made the journey. That last quarter mile, mentally, couldn't have been done without those hands. Guardian Z shows up to holographically high-five everybody. It smiles all around. Although, I really did feel like this scene was pregnant with the idea that their their relationship could be not long for this world now that uh now that Gray has a body. Yeah. Thought the same thing. I also wished Samitz was in this scene. Samitz has made such a big deal about Adira being his family. And I think I agree. Culber met Gray on the Dilithium planet, but Stamets didn't. Is that right? I mean, this is a great point. You never want to argue that, you know, one parent is the favorite or whatever. <laughs> but were there to be a favorite parent, I think it's definitely Stamets, right? <laughs> like he's the closer to the situation yeah. between the two. Wait, you mean Culber or Stamets? I'm talking about Stamets. Oh, okay. Stamets, who is gone. Yeah, who's not there. Stamets is going to come back and be like, what the fuck, Culber? Yeah. Like kind of a lot happened. I was on a work and- trip and you did this? <laughs> In that in that classic, like uh, you did something really cool, except I was gone. Yeah. So yeah. So I'm mad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Final scene in the episode. Mm-hmm. Book hanging out in the captain's quarters. He's got the uh, a Terrence Malick film uh, projected against the ceiling of the quarters, just looking up at those trees. The uh, the higher ceilings really give his ship a. Uh, Larger resale value, I think. You know, <laughs> Burnham comes in, happy to see him, and happy to see that he is revisiting a scene from Quajon. It's a moment of real growth because this was something that he couldn't touch with a ten-foot pole even earlier that day. But this like resolution that he got from uh, the president of Navarre's mine meld is really helping him out. Big day for a lot of people. Big episode. Big episode. But did you like it, Ben? I did not love this episode the first time through. Um, yeah? I I think I usually, for our reviews, I, I will watch these twice. And I watched this one mm-hmm. once through. And I took, I, I usually don't take notes the first time. I take notes my mm-hmm. second time. And I, mm-hmm. I don't know why. I was just like worried I wouldn't have enough time to to get a second one in today. So I just I, I watched it once and I took notes and I was like, God, I've, I was kind of disappointed in that. And then I uh, over lunch watched it again and did not take notes. And I enjoyed it a whole bunch more the second time. And I don't know what to attribute that to. Like, I think. Oh, you mean uh, watching something for fun instead of for uh, <laughs> for work added to your enjoyment of the thing? Interesting. <laughs> that might be the factor. It might be that like the kind of knowing where the episode was going raised my tolerance for a couple of the scenes that seemed kind of Mm -hmm. superficial and saccharine the first time through. Yeah. Like I think my criticisms are like, I, I do need more connective tissue. I want the ship pulling up to things. I want to know like, Mm -hmm. how did they get to Navarre? How did Gray's 
soul get into the golem? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like what was the process like? It's very uh, college slash independent film science, you know. Yeah, you see nothing. Right, it's just suggested. We 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 didn't get an establishing shot of anything in this, and that did kind of bother me. But other than that, I guess I felt slightly better about this episode on the second viewing than I felt on the first. It was uh, not a not a flawless episode by any means, but um, some some interesting stuff happens for sure. I think my feelings on it are more structural in its relationship to the the previous couple of episodes. By the time we get to the end of this episode, we have resolved every major character arc that we started with, right? Yeah. All of the problems were created at the beginning of this season only to be solved by the end of episode three. <laughs> and now... It feels like it, it was like artificial, right? Book and Gray and Tilly and Adira all went through their their three episode arc. And now by the end of this episode, we are right back where we started. Everyone has been sort of restored. I mean, Book lost an entire planet of people. I'm not trying to, to minimize <laughs> what's going on there. <laughs> but you have a scarcity of resources when you're a Star Trek season right now. And we are going to go into episode four next week. Where are we going to be there? We're going to be delivering dilithium still. We're going to be trying to figure out what the deal is with this double or single black hole situation. And we have not really changed states at all. I mean, great changed states, obviously. Like people went through their things, but like I feel like we we went back to one here. And in a way that feels a little less satisfying. If we've got six or seven episodes left, I would have liked to have been a little further down the road than it feels right now. And that's that's how I'm feeling about it. It took a lot of time to get to this point, and we aren't very far. Yeah. In some ways, there is room for optimism in that take, because that could be the season indicating that it is about to depart from the paint-by-numbers aspect of things act one being the setup yeah so that could be cool but i share some of your fears <laughs> right um but uh i also want to share some p1s with the listeners so uh, why don't oh. we head to that inbox and see what we got priority one message from starfleet coming in on secured channel ben our first priority one message is from kim it's to tino and the message goes like this tino While you could confidently pull off a Riker maneuver, you don't need to, because your affable charm easily commands a room. I have always been captivated by you, and our children have been blessed with your passion for life. Wow. Couldn't imagine life any other way. Happy 39th birthday, you beautiful bag of mostly water. Love, (laughs) Kim. Happy birthday, Tino. Yeah. That's great. Tino sounds really great. Yeah. I mean, affable charm commanding a room. Passion for life. I like the sound of that. It sounds like Tino should host a show. Indeed. Adam, our next Priority One message is from Leah next to you on the toilet paper plane. And that is to Riley. You left your phone unlocked on the seat and I saw the greatest disco logo. Wow. Wow. goes like this. I'm a little bit embarrassed, but I thought I'd write you a P1 
outing each other as FODs. Happy six-month friendiversary of when you turned to me on this very plane and said, so where are we going? Cheers to runway runs, Fenway wine, hitching rides with Kevin, and apparently being the biggest secret nerds on tour. Happy awkward Netflix Thanksgiving! Oh, we missed Thanksgiving by a bit, but... uh, (laughs) I love this story! That's great! I'm not advocating anyone look at anyone else's screen on an airplane. Mm. Definitely do not do that. Well, this was a toilet paper plane, Adam, so... It seems like uh, there was a phone left on a seat and there was a logo on it. Yeah. I love that. That's great. I mean, what better way to know that you got something in common with a person? I like that podcast, too. It's a great foundation. Yeah. It's made many a great FOD friendship happen. Indeed. Well, Adam, if uh, people would like to make a great FOD P1 happen, they can head to MaximumFun.org slash Jembotron. We really appreciate it. It helps us uh, cover the cost of producing this show. Hey, Ben. What's that, Adam? Did you discover yourself in Edward Larkin? I mean, there's a temptation to throw it to Tilly for pulling dilithium out of the warp core. But uh, she wasn't doing it in the silliest of ways. I mean, she had some funny moments in this, uh, but uh, I don't. She didn't quite get there for me as the Edward Larkin. I do want to give it to Gabrielle Burnham, and mm. it is both for Gabrielle Burnham's kind of like attitude toward. She's very smug about her co-op malat lifestyle, like adopted late in life, but really committed to it, like a religious convert. I feel like people ask her direct questions and she won't answer them, but then she'll like mm. lecture people on radical candor. Also, just like that opening scene where they're like having a meeting and she just like makes the most dramatic entrance where they like, I don't know if you caught this camera work where the camera caught her reflection in the table before panning uh-huh. up to reveal her. Yeah. Just a flair for the dramatic in a way that I really enjoyed. And I, I, I loved that stuff a lot. Like, she had the most dramatic entrance into this series of any character and she's keeping the dramatic entrances going. That's a good one. How about yourself? I am going to make my Edward Larkin. God, I hate to do this, Ben. Oh no. Admiral Vance (laughs) is my Edward Larkin. And here's why. What are we doing with him? I feel like we kept him around because we really like Oded Fair's work, and I do. Yeah. He's great. But as a character, what is he doing? <laughs> He's basically at the end of every meeting with between Burnham and the president going, yeah, working with presidents, it's fucking hard. <laughs> so uh, just do your best, and, and we'll see what comes out of the wash. It's been three episodes where Admiral Vance has basically just done that. Yeah. That is not a motivation for a character. That is not an arc for a character. He is just a familiar to Michael Burnham in a way that provides comfort because every time we're with the with President Shoulder Pads, we're made to feel uncomfortable. Do you think he's going to end up being like the police captain in a procedural like, Burnham, get in here. I've got the president so far up my ass after that stunt you pulled. I want your badge and your piece on my desk. Here's what I'll say, Ben. It's time. It's time for that. (laughs) It is absolutely time for that for this character. Yeah, yeah. I love him enough to let him go. Let's kill the guy. Let's kill the character. 
if it means freeing up this actor to do other and good work, because telling stories about the symphony isn't doing it for me right now. Right. Like he's good. <laughs> My take is he's good. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I don't think they're giving him enough. Yeah. Give him more, load him up. I want more Admiral Vance. I want more shit scenes. Yeah. Because he can take it. Yeah. He's the Admiral we deserve, but he's not the one we need right now. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Make him the Admiral we need because Burnham doesn't need him. The president doesn't need him. What is he there for? I don't know yet, but maybe uh, episode four of season four will tell us. Well, Adam, that's our next episode. And I have a description of that here somewhere. Where did it go? Season Admiral Vance steals a starship, <laughs> flies to the Genesis planet. Uh, next episode is episode four of season four. All is possible. And uh, the description is as follows. Tilly and Adira lead a team of Starfleet Academy cadets on a training mission that takes a dangerous turn. Meanwhile, Burnham is pulled into tense negotiations on Navarre. Hmm. All right. I guess you want Tilly and Adira teaching cadets about what 32nd century Starfleet is about. <laughs> I mean, Adira knows. Adira's been there the whole time. Adira's got Admiral memories, man. <laughs> you know what? With Adira, I, I totally get the selection. But this is like you sign up for the college class with the shooting star professor and you get the TA the whole time. Yeah, yeah. This is not what you signed up for. This sucks. I want my money back. <laughs> Sorry, you're in a crippling amount of debt forever. <laughs> well, that will be next week on The Greatest Discovery. In the meantime, how about you enjoy these credits? The Greatest Discovery is an Uxbridge Shimoda podcast on the Maximum Fun Network. This episode was edited by James Willits. Our music is by Adam Ragusea, who makes a great YouTube cooking channel. Just search Adam Ragusea. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Greatest Trek, and those accounts are run by the card daddy, Bill Tilly. If you enjoy the show, help us out by leaving a nice review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download podcasts and recommend the show to a friend to help us grow. We'll be back next week with more of The Greatest Discovery. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.